0: be reading from Luke chapter 24 verses 13 to 35 you can follow along in your Bible they're in the pews in front of you or you can read along on the screen as they read this aloud to us now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem they were talking with each other about everything that had happened and as they talked and discussed these things with each other Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us and on the road and opened the scripture to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them, assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is God's word. Good
1: morning, church. <clears throat> Happy New Year! Happy New Year. Thanks. Okay, um, <laughs> we'll say it a lot. At, we're saving our energy till 11:59, or in my case, probably 9 p.m. So, um, we just finished our Advent series, um, and I have the joy of wrapping up our series, "Christ in Strange Places," with another remarkable story of Christ found in a very strange in a very unexpected place with the story of the road to Emmaus that was just read uh, read to us. So this story has captured my imagination over the years. This story in particular is one that really helped propel me to make a decision to follow Jesus. It was so intriguing to me. I wondered what the heck was going on. Um, But no matter how many times I've read it or hear it or listen to it, Something new is uncovered and yet to be discovered in this story. See, it has amazing elements of a story. It has drama, and I like to think humor, the best kind, and intrigue, and people that are appearing and disappearing, and meals all around bread. This is great. So, the Gospel of Luke reveals and unravels something beautiful in this particular story of the road to Emmaus. Here, he's invited us on the journey along this road, and he shows us the entire story of the gospel from beginning to end with his authorship of brevity and intentionality. And I'm excited to find what's in this text with you this morning. My prayer is that we find ourselves in the story. We relate to it. And more importantly, we find Jesus, not just intellectually and not with knowledge, but we're open to an experience of who Jesus is. Let it touch our hearts for that. So before I go on, I'd love to pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for another day. I thank you for, uh, you yeah, have breath in our lungs. And God, we surrender this time to you. Um, would you make us open to hear you, to see you, to experience you? God, thank you for the joy it is to gather together. In your name I pray, amen. So, the road to Emmaus' story in Luke's gospel portrays a classic problem that many Jesus followers find themselves confronted with in any kind of journey. The question is, is how is it that we might see Jesus, but we do not recognize him? See, the road to Emmaus is filled with all kinds of intrigue like this. The two disciples see Jesus... They talk to Jesus, they're gonna hear Jesus, and all the while, they don't recognize him. So our invitation this morning is for us to discover together and ask ourselves lots of questions, like what might be preventing us from seeing Jesus as well? How is it that we don't recognize him sometimes? And I want us to consider and pay attention of how Jesus responds to these two disciples on their journey. And I want us to be curious about how he interacts with them. And I also hope to uncover some aspect of Jesus' character and how we actually interact with Jesus on our journeys as well. And maybe there's times that we actually feel like we don't see him or recognize him too. So, like every great storyline and drama, I'm going to divide our passage of scripture into four acts with an epilogue of sorts. It's going to help us ponder our questions. I got this framework from a fellow pastor, and she said that she divided that into four acts, and they are disappointment, dialogue, dinner, and a declaration. So act one, disappointment. The question is, how is it that we might see Jesus, but we don't recognize him? We pick up in verse 13 that says, Now that same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. See, our opening scene in verse 13 finds two followers of Jesus on the road in the early afternoon, and they are processing through everything that had just occurred days earlier. In fact, three days exactly earlier. See, it has been three days since their expectations of the Messiah were crushed. It had been three days since they witnessed his crucifixion and death and undoubtedly are devastated. You see, followers of Jesus had certain hopes and they had certain expectations about who Jesus of Nazareth would be. See, they expected that he would be a kind of Messiah that would overthrow the Romans. They expected him to lead a religious revival and rescue them from their oppressors. And certainly, this expectation that these two disciples had did not include a brutal death, a suffering... And crucifixion on a cross. See, they were filled with disappointment and disillusionment of God. Things had not gone the way that they had imagined. Their hope and their hearts are sick. We see in verse 17, it says that they are still and and faces are downcast. See, they are dealing with shattered hope and immense grief. What the disciples had hoped would not happen did not happen, actually. And worse, their leader and their friend is dead. I'm gonna trust that many of us can understand perhaps a moment or season like this in our own lives. Perhaps we're going through one of loss and disappointment right now. Things that are marked with maybe unmet expectations that cause a wound or maybe a really deep wound. Maybe a betrayal from a loved one, a loss of a job, or a dream, or a relationship, or a marriage, and not to mention all different kinds of deaths that we experience. They're all met with grief and unexpected loss. And we don't have to go far in our own lives of the human experience to experience loss and disappointment, like these two did on the road to Emmaus. So like the two disciples on the road, we can ask ourselves, what do we do with this kind of disappointment in our lives? What do we do with this kind of deep grief and loss that we might experience? Well, I think there's a lot that we can do, but we could become disillusioned. We could become resentful. We could start to doubt. Worse, we could repress all the feelings. We can move into denial or extended mourning. Or we can also be downcast, just like these two disciples on the road. We pick back up in verse 15. It says that they were talked and discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So if you're like me, I ask, but why? <laughs> like, why was Jesus unrecognizable here? It states that their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. See, many theologians refer to Mark 16, 12, and they tell us that Jesus' post-resurrection glorified body had changed in such a way that he was unrecognizable. But this is a very common occurrence in resurrection stories in scripture. But also... I think there is something else happening here along with that resurrected, glorified body. I take this cue from a little bit before Mary Magdalene recognizes Jesus as soon as she hears him speak, before she even sees him. So for these two disciples here on the road, the problem that they are is that they had false expectations of who Jesus the Messiah was, and they are still reeling with disappointment and unmet expectations. See, disappointment is physiological and emotional along with mental. They took their grief and disillusioned state and became downcast. See, I also want us to pay attention to what happened right before this passage as we find them on their journey. The two disciples heard the news that where Jesus' body was laid, there was actually now no body and the tomb was empty. And instead of leaning into curiosity and clarity like the fellow disciples, like Peter and John, who actually ran to the tomb to see for themselves, these two disciples headed in the opposite direction, away from the others. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I experience deep wounds or pain, I just want to run. (laughs) I want to avoid it. And honestly, I go a little bit further is I want to cut out everything that hurts and any person who has wounded me and just pretend that they're dead to me. It's not healthy, but this is a form of disillusionment. I'm disillusioned in those moments. I hope you guys can relate to some of those. But even just like these two disciples, they heard the witnesses even of angels. But the two disciples are still so overcome with disappointment that they don't even recognize Jesus when he shows right up next to them. See, sometimes our overwhelming grief and disappointment can make God unrecognizable to us. Their disappointment and their disillusionment made them so skeptical and so doubtful that they don't actually realize what's happening around them. Have you ever had those moments too? I mean, I know when I've been so overcome and overwhelmed with grief, I don't know what day or time it is. Sometimes I don't even know when to eat or when to sleep I am so disillusioned to the reality of the world. But further, I want us to dig deeper into these verses here to show us something more about how the two disciples also missed Jesus. They missed recognizing him. See, in verse 14, it says they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Then in verse 15, it says, as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. See, in verse 14, it says that they were talking with each other. This word in Greek is homileo. It means to converse with one another at length. But then by the time we get to verse 15, the same verb of talking is a different kind of verb. This verb means to reason and examine together, to dispute and to argue. It's a very different tone. So the two disciples don't understand what's going on, so they're starting to process their grief, right? They're trying to make sense of it with with each other. So, but then by the time verse 15 rolls around, their talking has turned into some kind of reasoning and logic to explain the pain away. It begins to turn to human reasoning maybe human terms with worldly knowledge or cultural expectations. But listen, it's not getting them any closer to the answers that they want. They're desperately seeking to see God, and actually it's taking them farther and farther away from him. And we see their reasoning or search for logical explanations for pain, and their desire to get away and avoid is not actually helping them. The two disciples missed the possibility of the unexpected and therefore did not recognize Jesus. So I ask us, I wonder how many times we don't expect God in the ways he shows up. So actually think he's unrecognizable to us. Further, it's not that God has changed, but more that our narratives and stories and our own minds do not align with what we imagined or expected him to be we also become disillusioned and disappointed. So now, it's not what the two disciples expected, so they give into doubting, and finally we see to deserting, they leave. It seems that for them, three days has been just a little bit too long to hold on to hope. So they decide to leave, they leave the other disciples, and they leave those who are actually trying to figure out what's next and what's been happening. So we move to our next act, act two, dialogue. We begin with verse 17 and unexpectedly, Jesus greets them with a question. We see him in 17, he says, what are you discussing together as you walk along? It's here that Jesus unexpectedly begins with a question. Often, I expect God to only enter scenes or my questions with harsh confrontation or angry correction but that is not who God is here. If we're familiar with scripture, we discover God usually begins with questions. To review some of the most powerful questions, to Adam and Eve in Genesis three, he asks, where are you and what have you done? To Hagar in Genesis 16, he asks, where have you come from? Where are you going? To Jacob in Genesis 35, he asks, what is your name? To Moses in Exodus 4, he asks, What is in your hand? To Job in Job 38, Who is this and where were you when? To Elijah in 1 Kings 19, What are you doing here? To Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Whom shall I send? To Jonah in Jonah 4, Do you have a right to be angry? And Jesus, in his life and his ministry, continues with the same pattern of questions. In Luke 8, did you not know who touched me? John 10, where's your husband? Mark 10, what do you want me to do for you? Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? And Luke 10, what's written in the law? Questions. See, we often expect God to enter conversations with anger or listing off laws or harsh confrontation, but we remember that he loves questions. So if you hear this statement, I also just ask more questions of God usually. So I ask why. Why do you ask questions so much, right? I believe that questions reveal emotions and motives and patterns of thinking. Let's think to ourselves Can you recall some powerful questions, or maybe people that have asked you powerful questions? There was a season earlier this year I was feeling stuck, and I asked some of my best friends to help me ask some really good questions of help me get unstuck. And I'll never forget one that uh, my friend asked me, and they said, "Don't you want to live a life of risk? Don't you want to be where somewhere where it builds the biggest faith? It helps? change something for me it helped unlock something for me see these types of questions cause us to stop and think and to examine and change and this is what happens on the road to Emmaus in verse 17 we see this question changes their movements it helps them to stop and think and to examine it pauses their emotions it makes them stand in their downcast faces and grief And this question from Jesus causes a new type of movement. It stops the two disciples and prompts a dialogue. More importantly, it helps invite Jesus, who is still the stranger, still unrecognizable, into their confusion and what they are currently processing. Henry Nouwen has a quote about this that says, Jesus walks with us on the road unrecognized. He joins us in our sadness and despair, Having been in the tomb for three days, he understands what it means to be stuck there. He listens to our story of confusion, disorientation, deep grief, and loss of direction, human failure, and inner darkness. Yes, he is with us in our lostness. But Jesus doesn't just stop with one question. He's not satisfied with just one sentence answer. He wants them to get to the heart of the matter. Jesus wants us to get to the heart of the matter with his questions. So we see then the disciples ask Jesus a question in return. It's like they are shocked that this stranger was walking with them and had no clue what they were unlocking. We see in verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And so Jesus, we see, responds with another question. What things, he asks I think he's trying to be cheeky a little bit, but I don't know. That's my own interpretation. (laughs) But we see how he responds to them in the following verses. But we see in this part of the story is that Jesus listens to them. He listens to their entire whole story. He listens to their hopes and expectations and, in a way, is inviting them to process and grieve. See, Jesus takes the posture of a listener to serve, not to gain insight or to debate them, or fuel a confrontation, but to serve these two disciples. He doesn't need to actually ask them questions because he knows exactly what happened to him. See, Jesus listens to their disappointment. He doesn't fix it, and he lets them grieve and share their pain with him. And just as God loves asking us questions, God also loves to listen. And after what they've shared and they're grieving, it still begs the question, how are they seeing Jesus? They're talking to him, but they don't recognize him. We see here in verse 25, this is where Jesus begins to take a posture of a comforter and consolation. But his comfort comes in a really unexpected form, of course. It comes in the form of confrontation. Now, not the kind of confrontation that we might come to expect, one that is harsh or critical or angry, but we will discover that his confrontation is different. And this is good news for us. See, these two disciples along the road on their journey need comfort, and they also need confrontation. And it's a different kind. We see in verse 25, he said to them, "'How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken.'" Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. See, it is here that Jesus is doing something unexpected. See, the confrontation motives aren't for malice, but for a deeper call to love. See, Jesus could have rebuked these disciples for disbelieving the evidence associated with his resurrection. He also could have rebuked them for disbelieving the witnesses of the women at the empty tomb or for deserting. And he could have rebuked them for not even recognizing him in front of them, but he doesn't do this. See, he is actually comforting through confrontation for a deeper invitation and reminder to remember Scripture, remember the words that were written. He is confronting that they forgot to read Scripture with understanding and belief. See, Jesus doesn't want them to be foolish and stuck in their own narratives and grief-stricken emotions without thinking or remembering God's promises or his word. He wants them to know and become aware of where their expectations lie. He wants to give them a reality check, right? He is questioning the foundation of where their expectation lies and calls them actually to more. To discern a corrective theology from scripture, not from their worldview, not from the culture around them, or their emotions alone. And just like the two disciples, we also need comfort and confrontation and love. We desire the same kind of reality check too. See, God unexpectedly confronts the ways we make God into our own image instead of being made into his. And then he confronts the misguided disappointments when we start believing that God does not act the way we expect. Let me pause. I need to hear this again, so I'm going to say it slowly. In two parts, part one, God wants to comfort, or sorry, confront the ways we make God into our own image instead of embracing the ways that we are made in his And second, he also wants to confront and comfort us to not be disappointed when God does not act the way that we expect God to act because we have made him in our own image. We need confrontation and comfort. He wants to confront our delusions, right? This is good news. This is good news that Jesus confronts because he wants more for us. He does not give us a free pass, even to these disciples when they're deeply disappointed and maybe even despairing. He chooses to confront. This kind of confrontation is like a fierce advocacy for love. He calls us to more. Jesus tells the disciples, hey, I know you are overcome with grief and you're sad, but dear friends, you have totally misunderstood what's happening See, Jesus is willing to confront their ignorance out of love and humility and refuses to let them continue to live in confusion and disillusionment. He's telling the two disciples, hey, pay attention. Remember what's written in the scripture. It's true. Let me recount the ways that God has fulfilled his promises. We see in verse 27, he explains to them all the things about himself. The scripture reminded them of the story of the Messiah. See, Jesus understood that the disciples would not completely understand the conversation. And they wouldn't have ears to hear it, so he brought them back to scripture. This confrontation from Jesus reminded the disciples where to gain insight from God and the questions that they have on their journey with him. He reminds them to go back to the word. What's really funny in this story is that Jesus actually didn't have to have a dialogue with them, right? He could have just showed up alongside of them and said, hey, guys, I'm God. (laughs) Hello, it's me. Let's talk about it and then I'm going to leave. But he doesn't. He invites us back to scripture. So scripture is a gift for us to remind ourselves about the dialogues we have with God and about who he is. We see in these verses, Jesus reminds us that when we have questions or are looking for answers about God or who he is or what he will do, we do not need to go to the surrounding culture or even commentaries or old sermons. We are invited to go back to the source in the scriptures and with the help of the Holy Spirit to give us insight. In this moment, the two disciples in this dialogue discovered and realized that they had been wrong they forgot. They no longer had to be confused or disappointed or grieved. It's here in this confrontation it turned to consolation and comfort, and here their hope was restored. In this confrontation of comfort, something inside of their hearts began to be unlocked and warm because the word of God became alive again to them. We remember that they're seeing Jesus, they're talking to him, having the best conversation of their life, probably, but they still don't recognize him. So that moves us to Act 3, dinner. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly to stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over, so he went in to stay with them. It is here that the two disciples are inviting somebody who has really amazingly unlocked something to them, but they still don't know it's Jesus. It's here they urge him to stay longer. The verb that they used is to a strong insistence to stay as their guest. And we see that Jesus obliges. But I want us to imagine, can you imagine a God changing his plans to stay with you because you urgently insist him to? He's unhurried and he's ready to linger and just be together. At this dinner, unexpectedly, this stranger and guest sits at the table and now becomes the host, and something happens at the end of this. They recognize him. In verse 30, it says, When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. What is so incredible in this is that Jesus is a host. He turns to a host. The phrase breaking of bread in verse 30 is shorthand for the four actions that occur in Scripture of the feeding of the 5,000, the Last Supper, and here in the road to Emmaus. I want us to remember these verbs. They are take, bless, break, and give. These are very significant verbs in a dinner See, Jesus is renewing more than just the recognition of the disciples. This is also a correlation from Genesis, but in reverse, right? The story of creation on one hand is Adam and Eve, and their eyes were open, and they were seen naked and ashamed. But here at the table in Luke, their eyes are opened with the breaking of the bread, and they recognize that Jesus is there, the Messiah. See, what was lost in the garden in Genesis is being restored with Jesus at the table in Luke. And God is in the business of great reversals. That encourages me. <laughs> he is always after us in our disappointment because he wants to bring us back into relationship with him. He wants to be seen and he wants to be recognized. So we see after this the two disciples' eyes are opened. And I'm like, finally. <laughs> They're opened. They see the stranger for who he really is. It's Jesus. But then... He disappears. I laugh at this because I sometimes wish I could do this at parties as an introvert, that I could just disappear. (laughs) It's rude. Anyways, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) But the cliffhanger, we think, and we see this and we think, gosh, did he just leave us with a cliffhanger? We say, no, there's more. It moves us to act for a declaration. So we see that he recognized, he was recognized by the two disciples. But now we're probably asking How do we keep seeing and recognizing Jesus? In verse 31, they say that their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned to at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. And their eyes were opened from breaking bread. This is such a common and repeated action that was done at mealtimes. The two disciples would have been very familiar with this. See, it's not a big burning bush on the Mount Sinai, it's not a loud booming voice from heaven or even a large earthquake. It's a simple, common moment. It's a moment that the disciples have engaged with many times before. And for me, it's such an unexpected moment, I often have to ask myself, are there any breaking bread moments that somehow I'm missing in my everyday life? I also ask further, okay, I see Jesus, but how do I keep seeing him? What do I need to do? And I wanna tell you a little story about my breaking bread kind of mundane moments that I've had with God for the last four years. About four years ago, I was in a deep, dark season of a lot of areas of my life, um, like my ethnic journey and identity, uh, my adoption story, a journey of singleness, whether I was called to pastor, and I just felt like crying out to God in desperation and disappointment of being like, God, do you even see me? So jokes on me, I find out that my name actually means God sees. <laughs> yeah, jokes on me. So we laugh about that still. But but in that, do you even see me moment? A friend encouraged me to pray bold prayers that were so specific, like this breaking bread and this mundane nature of something I see every day. And I particularly just was like, "Fine, God, like I want to see purple flowers every day." I said it kind of like haphazardly, whatever. But friends, I've seen them every day for 4 years. I look for them everywhere. And it's not because I feel like Jesus is just in those purple flowers, but I am hungry to see them. I'm practicing looking, I'm practicing recognizing, and I'm practicing seeing. I just want to share some of the funniest ways that he showed up to me where I'm like, okay, God, you've increased my faith. One of them was in Yosemite in the dead of winter. It was snowing. I'm like, yeah, right, God, I'm not going to see anything. So I um, enter into the lodge, and on the wall, in a card, there is a purple flower posted on the wall. And then there's been funnier times over the years where I don't even leave my house sometimes. Maybe I'm sick, or I just, like, don't feel like going outside. Um, But they show up in my mailbox on stamps, on cards, on letters. And it is this fun, mundane, everyday occurrence that I'm looking for Jesus The point is that it changed my approach of being hungry to see God. I'm expectant and renewed hope every time I see something. It's fulfilling my faith. It wasn't big, it's not an earthquake, it's not a burning bush, it's simple, it's mundane. It's prepared me to see God in lots of other places. It's like I'm expectant when I look that he's gonna see me and I'm gonna see him. And then I'm going to expect him to be there, and he's going to expect me. So we look to see and recognize this through practice, right? So now, an epilogue. The final scene, after they recognize Jesus, is there are two of them sitting at the table. They're probably most likely in shock because Jesus just disappeared from their sight. I would be totally freaked out, but... They turn to each other and kind of shock and disbelief, they say, were not our hearts burning within us? And I would just be so happy there that there was someone else to witness and share with me in the moment. But we see what they did. They quickly got up and returned to Jerusalem at once See, this experience compelled them to testify and share stories and tell them all about the experience, but first, they needed to tell each other in each other's presence. It was a declaration. This is the joy of community. We witness to one another. So now, they journey and return back to where it all began, and they took the same road to Emmaus, but in reverse. Can you imagine at the beginning of the passage, they're disappointed, they're so grieved, they're so disillusioned, but think about the tone on the way back. It's like they're running and skipping and running and skipping because they're just so excited that they saw Jesus. So they return back to the disciples and declare the truth and promises that Jesus is alive and the prophecy was true. See, here we witness Jesus restoring not just for our own sake and our own faith, but for the sake of his mission and for collectively as a community, that Jesus was seen and he's recognized. In closing, before we pray, I just want us to ponder a few things. So how do we continue to see Jesus and recognize him? My hope is that we've come to recognize ourselves in this story this morning with the road to Emmaus. There might be parts of it. There are lots of parts in those acts, right? There might be more than just disappointment or dialogue or dinner or a declaration or even the epilogue. But the thing is that we're invited to each element of the story over and over again. The invitations are endless for us to journey with God. And he meets us where we're at in that journey Particularly for those of us in this season, I want to invite you to come up here to pray that you, that God might seem like unrecognizable or really distant. And we might want to desert or avoid, but I want you to press into a dialogue with God, with those disappointments. And I also think sometimes it's okay that you don't have words to say that. You could just be open in your heart and let God do his work. This is our experience of God when he takes that and meets us in our burdens. If you're here today also and you have never heard this story, I hope it spurred you to faith in Jesus, that you've experienced Jesus like I did, like he was real and it was crazy and I was intrigued by who he was. I know plenty of us up here would love to pray with you or even I would love to pray with you and talk to you about what it's like to be a friend to someone who has the ability to make himself known in a lot of very strange, strange places. And maybe we are here too that we need warmed hearts or maybe they're even burning right now too. You're overcome with joy from God. I want us to remember to discern and cling to scripture, to be discerning and wise with one another, the Holy Spirit, and the Bible. And our goal is to return to Jesus. Our expectation and hope is in Jesus. And for those of us, lastly, who need declaration, I want you to be bold to tell either your neighbor that there's somebody that needs to hear the goodness of God and what he's done in this last season. You need to have your faith restored and we need to share in those stories. And together we continue to to declare that we have actually seen Jesus, just like the disciples, that we have seen Jesus, maybe not the Jesus that we expected and maybe not the Jesus that we thought based on our wrong misconceptions of God, but we actually declare that we've seen the God of Scripture. And this is how every story of the gospel ends. It ends in declaration and praise.